Hey Metro, we are in our second part of our series called The Greatest Message Ever. And uh, it's a different kind of a series. Let me tell you where this was inspired. Um, several weeks ago, I was in the gym working out this body. And uh, um, I was listening to a sermon by a somebody who has kind of mentored me, a preacher named Andy Stanley. He's down in Atlanta, Georgia. And... Um, He's mentored me through his messages, his books, his, his podcasts, those sorts of things. And, and, and when I was working out, thinking about all this, uh, he, he was pouring into my soul in such a big way. I thought of a couple things. Uh, number one is th- just how important it is to have somebody to mentor you, somebody that you look up to who is ahead of you in life, who, who can take you where you're not on your own naturally. And, and Andy Stanley, in a lot of ways, has been that for me. A couple other guys like Bill Hybels has been that way. And um, uh, Richard Foster. Some of these writers have done this in my life. But Andy Stanley, as, as a, a church leader and as a preacher, has been just so influential in my life. And so the idea of mentoring really came front and center to me a couple weeks ago. And then when I was listening to his message, it was uh, so compelling to me. I thought to myself, man, my whole church needs to hear this. Our, our entire congregation needs to hear this message because it mattered so much to me. I was thinking in my mind, how could I, you know, rewrite this and give this to you? And then it dawned on me, why fix something that isn't broken? And so uh, I decided right then and there that I just needed to look for an opportunity to play this message to our congregation uh, because it is so good. So this message that Andy Stanley is going to bring, um, it's called the uh, the N commandments the end commandments it's part one of a series and in, in this series it's interesting he goes on and he talks about the things that jesus teaches his followers not to do such as do not fear do not do not worry those sorts of things but the first part of this series isn't about that at all it's about jesus and why we can trust his leadership why we can trust him. And he asked this question, why are people leaving Christianity? Why are people leaving the church? And when I heard that, it just grabbed my attention right away because yeah, why are people leaving something that I love so much? I mean, Christ is the center of my life. He is my hope. He is my ambition. Uh, My whole life is built around him. And so for me, it's a foreign idea. Why would people leave Christ? But he begins to tackle this question in this first part. And I think it is so compelling. It is so good. He answers the question of why Christ? Why do we hope in Jesus? Why is our life built around Jesus? How do we know that Jesus is the truth? Well, today we're beginning a brand new series called The N Commandments, and if this is your first time with us, if the first time you've watched with us, we take a topic and talk about it for several weeks, and today is the introduction. So if at the end of today's message you're like, I'm not really sure what to do with it, I'm going to go ahead and give you the application now. Come back next week, <laughs> which is great because this is the first sermon some of you have ever been able to apply, okay? And you don't even have to be a Christian to apply that. So come back next week. This is the introduction to the N commandments, and I'll tell you what the N stands for at the very end of the message. Now, um, because I'm a pastor, I I have some hobbies and some habits and some interests that perhaps you don't have, and and you may think this is crazy, but I love to read blogs by people who have abandoned the Christian faith. 
I've even read a couple of books by people who've abandoned the Christian faith. That's always so fascinating to me. Why would someone stop being a Christian? Because I think why, because following Jesus, following Jesus makes your life better and following Jesus makes you better at life. And everybody wants their life to be better and everybody, most people want to be better at life. So I don't quite get that. So I'm always fascinated, not by people who are, have never been Christians, but by, by those who were raised in the church or they kind of became a Christian for a while and, then, and then, then bailed out. And the thing that's always so fascinating to me in my experience, which is limited, 100, 100% of the people that I've read their story or talked to personally who bailed out of Christianity, bailed out for really bad reasons. They bailed out because they met some quirky Christians or some weird Christians or their parents were weird or, you know, they, they didn't like the Christians, so they, they left Jesus. That's, that's a bad reason to leave Jesus. You've had bad haircuts, you just found another barber, okay? You've had bad medical experiences, you found another doctor. You didn't give up on haircutting, you didn't give up on doctors. So don't give up on Jesus because of us Christians, okay? So that's one bad reason. So... Anyway, the other, the more fascinating, that's just, that's sort of a sidebar. The more fascinating thing to me are the people who give up on Christianity because of the Bible. The Bible is another terrible reason to give up on Christianity. And this happens all the time. Somebody says, well, I got, you know, the six day creation thing. I can't go with that. I used to believe that as a kid. And then I went to college and, you know, six days of creation. And so the whole idea is, or, you know, um, sanctioned genocide in the Old Testament. I just can't follow a God who sanctions genocide in the Old Testament. Or Andy, you know, there's, there's no historical or there's no evidence that the Israelites actually left Israel and, you mean, excuse me, left Egypt. And, and then there's, you know, there's this date in the New Testament that doesn't line up with other historical documents. So I just, I just left Christianity. I'm like, those are, and this sounds offensive, but don't leave. That's ter- those are terrible reasons to quit being a Christian, okay? And all of that may be true. And so I'm just reminded that the church, and, and I'm, you know, I can, you know, I'll take part of the blame. The church has done a terrible job communicating the foundation of our faith. It's done a terrible job. I've never, I've never talked to someone who genuinely followed Jesus and then left and thought they had a good reason. I mean, I, I don't argue with people's story, but it's like, wait a minute, what you're rejecting isn't even the faith. What you're rejecting isn't even essential to Christianity. And so what's happened, and if those of you who were here for the brand new series, if you didn't watch the brand new series or weren't here for it, please go online and watch the brand new series. You can find that on our websites under the messages. But anyway, picking up kind of where we left off, in the, the temple model, the Christian version of the temple model, in the Christian version of the temple model, we were presented with the Bible as the foundation of our faith. The Bible is not the foundation of our faith. Don't panic, evangelicals. What the the foundation, don't email me either. The foundation, (laughs) you can email me. The, The foundation, the foundation of our faith, this is better. Okay, don't panic. The foundation of our faith is an event, the resurrection. The foundation of the Christian faith is an event. It's the resurrection. It's not the Old Testament. It's not the New Testament. And, you know, part of our problem is we were given the Old Testament and the New Testament together, right? All bound up in a book called the Bible, which, you know, I love the Bible, okay? This is your first time. I love the Bible. But when, they, when it got put together, it was given equal theological weight, not equal theological practice, but equal theological weight. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you understand this struggle because somebody says to you, you know, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, doesn't the Bible teach and they reference some Old Testament thing and you go, yeah, it does say that, but we don't do that. Well, why? 
I don't know. Isn't it all inspired? Yeah, but you don't do that part? No, why? I don't know. Don't ask me any hard questions. I got to go, okay? So it's like, we, you understand that tension, okay? That tension, you should not live with that tension. You should not be embarrassed by that because the foundation of our faith isn't a book. The foundation of our faith is an event that got documented in a book. Let me, and, and so what happens is we approach Christianity like it becomes like a house of cards. So this is why people leave Christianity because of the Bible. The Bible is a terrible reason to leave Christianity. So somebody says, well, you know, I don't believe this or there was a contradiction here or this didn't line up or my teacher this or so so you pull out one part or one thing that didn't line up and the whole house comes tumbling down and you think see there all of Christianity falls apart if you can't trust this part why should I be able to trust that part okay if that's why you left the faith now that's not really why you left the faith that's what you told your parents because they didn't know how to respond but if that's really why you left the faith you need to come back because that's a terrible reason let, let me tell you what that's like and then I got to move on and get into the sermon Okay. <laughs> that would be like me saying, you know what? I don't think you exist because I looked at your birth certificate and it wasn't accurate. I looked at your birth certificate and I didn't like some of the stuff in there. I looked at the birth certificate and I, you know what? They didn't get it right when you were born. And so since your birth certificate is wrong, you don't exist. You'd say, well, that's absurd. Now listen, the, your birth certificate documents your existence, it doesn't determine your existence. Your birth certificate documents that you're here, it doesn't determine that you're here. Did you know, this is gonna be shocking, this is probably the only, maybe the first time you've learned something in church in a while. Did you know there are actual human beings who do not have a birth certificate? How can that be? Well, it's easy, obviously, right? Because the birth certificate documents. Now, here's what you need to know about Christianity, okay? The New Testament documents what happened. It's not the same as what happened. It's two different things. So if you find a discrepancy or something you don't like or something you don't understand or something that doesn't line up in the New Testament, I think it all lines up. But if you find stuff that doesn't line up, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, because the New Testament is a, documents what actually happened. And what actually happened is the foundation of our faith, the resurrection. And the Old Testament simply documents the nation of the history of the nation of Israel. And then for convenience sake, they all got put in one book. But listen, if you find stuff in the Old Testament or the New Testament you don't like, you don't agree with, you can't make it line up, I'm just telling you. That is no reason to leave the Christian faith because the foundation of the faith isn't the birth certificate. It's what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, let me just say this before we, before we leave, okay? Before you check out, all right? Look, if Christianity was as fragile as some of us treat it, if Christianity was as fragile as some of you have approached it, and that's why you left, you know, because of something you heard. If Christianity was so fragile that it could fall apart because somebody found something in a book they disagreed with or couldn't substantiate, then Christianity would have never survived the first 300 years. Because in the first 100 years of Christianity, as you know, you could lose your life for being a Christian. This was not a fragile belief system. It wasn't fragile at all. I mean, you, you could lose your job, your family could lose your job, you could be unemployable because somebody suspected that you were a Christian, which meant you thought Jesus was a bigger deal than Caesar. In fact, within this first 300 years, the, 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 the strength and the courage and the commitment, the dedication of Christians, it's absolutely unbelievable in, in light of what they face. So again, just one more time that I gotta go. If, listen, this is important. If you are considering leaving Christianity or you left Christianity over something you read in the Bible, I'm telling you, 
You owe it to yourself to listen today, to come back next week, and to take a deep breath because I'm telling you, you kind of know this. If you don't, following Jesus will make your life better and, and following Jesus will make you better at life and he might have risen from the dead. And if he did, who cares what the Bible says, okay? If somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm with him, right? I mean, isn't it that? It's pretty much that simple. Okay, I just had to get that out. Now, there was, a, um, there was an apologist who's somebody who kind of argues for something, an apologist, a Christian apologist who lived in the early third century. He died like 250 or 253 AD named Tertullian, who you may have heard of before. And he was a Christian. He was a centurion's son, okay? His father was a Roman centurion. He became a Christian when he was 40 years old, which was kind of old, you know, b- back in those days. You know, people didn't live as long. And he made a statement that kind of puts all of this in context, okay? So he's writing during the time it is dangerous to be a Christian, and he sort of tongue-in-cheek wrote the following. He said this. He said, if the Tiber, which is a river, you probably know that, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. Now, he lived during a time when this was happening. His point was, in the Roman Empire, anytime things went bad, they blamed the Christians because they thought, oh no, the gods are angry and the gods are angry because we got all these Christians running around that don't worship and honor the gods. So if we'll just get rid of the Christians, the God will be happy, the gods will be happy with us and then the river won't overflow and destroy our crops or it won't be too low and we won't be able to water our crops. My point is this, nobody gave up on Christianity in the first couple or three centuries because of why many of you have considered giving up on Christianity or perhaps why you did. It was, way, it was not near as fragile as you've considered Christianity to be. Nobody gave, up on, nobody gave up on Christianity in the first three centuries because of the violence in the Old Testament. Good grief. They embraced Christianity because of, the, because of the violence in their culture. And they saw Christianity as something liberating and better than the Roman violence. Nobody abandoned Christianity in the first three centuries because of something they read in a book or because they couldn't make the text line up. You know why? Because the Gentiles didn't have a Bible. The Old Testament was the Jewish Bible, and there was no New Testament. There was no Gentile Bible. All they had was the teachings of Jesus. We'll get to that in just a minute. And yet they were able to maintain Christianity. Now, here's, here's how, what a big deal this is. And if you're a Christian, you should be so proud of this. And I mean, you should know this. this is, we, we haven't done a great job with this. Um, when you read secular history, which I love to do, and you get to the part about the development of Christianity, all serious, honest histori- you know, historians say the very same thing. I remember at my college class, Georgia State University, ancient history, we got to the part of Christianity, and, and my professor said something, and I didn't get it then, because I was young, and I sort of had a Sunday school faith, you know, but I still remember what he said, because it seemed so strange to me, but he basically said what every serious historian says about the rise of Christianity. So recently, I picked up a book that just came out by Karen Armstrong. I've read several of her books called Fields of Blood, Religion, and the History of Violence. And this is essentially a book about the history of violence within all religions. And of course, she's written this in response to what's happening in different parts of our world today as religion and violence seem to go hand in hand. So I'm reading this book, and I get to the part about the, the rise of Christianity. And lo and behold, Karen Armstrong says what many historians acknowledge. So this is a quote from the book. Here's what she says. Yet, against all odds, okay, she's basically approaching this as a secular historian. Against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. 
Everybody agrees. We know how it kind of started with Jesus. We know it happened by the third and fourth and fifth century. But those first three centuries, how in the world did this religion even survive? It was so hardy. It was so strong. Now, what she's saying is this, that all historians, like your doctor, look for natural causes, natural causes. In other words, when you go to the doctor and you've got a pain or a problem, you don't want the doctor to come out after they've done all the blood work and done all the labs and says, well, look, I've looked at your labs and I think God's trying to teach you something. (laughs) You're like, that may be true. I'll talk to my pastor. Fix it. Okay. I want you to find the natural, don't give me a Bible verse. I want you to tell me the natural, give me a natural explanation so we can come up with a natural solution. That's what doctors are supposed to do. That's what historians are supposed to do. So when you study American history, American history, the rise of the United States of America is no mystery. I mean, it's exciting. It's no mystery. I mean, you have the colonists, you've got King George, you got this conflict, you got two different cultures, taxation without representation, Boston Tea Party. It's fascinating, but nobody's like, we have no idea how the United States of America. No, but it's no, there's no mystery. It, it's, there's a natural explanation. Same, the story of Islam. I don't know if you've read the story, history of Islam. You should do that, okay? It's relevant right now. So Islam, there were all these fragmented Arab tribes. They all were pagans. They all worshiped all these different gods. Muhammad comes along and unifies them around a single God. He introduced monotheism to the Arab tribes. They all begin to follow him. He raises an army. It's a fascinating story, but nobody goes, we have no idea how to explain the rise of Islam. But when it comes to Christianity, every honest historian says, all we know is what we know. And there's this big dark part where we just, we can't imagine how in the world Christianity survived those first three centuries. I'm telling you, it is so stinking hardy. And for you to abandon it because of something you found in the Bible you don't like or disagree with or can't line up or you met some crazy Christians, oh my goodness, you need to come back. You need to come back. Now, historians can kind of guess and piece things, piece things together, and they're supposed to do that. I'm not being critical at all. Fortunately for us, fortunately for us, the players, the people who were there, give us extraordinary insight into what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and why the church became, as Karen Armstrong says, a force to be reckoned with. So to introduce this series, here's what Happen, And this is how we get to what we're calling the end commandments. Jesus rises from the dead and nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming. Again, nobody expected nobody. So there was a total surprise. There's chaos. There's pandemonium. There's people going into the streets of Jerusalem saying, hey, I know I was a coward before, but do what you want to to me. I have had a conversation with a risen Savior. And thousands of people in Jerusalem, within walking distance of these events, embraced Jesus as Savior. And then something very fascinating happens. A group of Jewish thinkers and theologians and religious leaders realized, Oh no, we missed it. We should have seen this coming. So they dive back into the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Like, how, how did we miss the Messiah? I mean, we were the professional, you know, be on the lookout for the Messiah people, and we totally missed it and participated and having him crucified. So they go back into the gospel, into the Old Testament, looking for Jesus. And behold, they find him. Oh my goodness, it says right here, the Messiah will suffer. We never saw that. Says right here, you know, where he would come from. And suddenly they begin to find all this, this, this literature that basically pointed to Jesus. That's why when you read the Gospel of Matthew, all throughout Matthew, there are references to the Old Testament that Jesus was a fulfillment of these things. So there was one group that went backwards and dove into the Old Testament to find Jesus. And sure enough, to connect him with Jewish history. 
another group said, hey, you take care of that. We're going to get the message out. We're going to tell all the Gentiles about Jesus, that God has done something very, very significant. Now, this is where you come in, okay? You have a part in the story because 95% of you or 98% of you are Gentile. You're not Jewish. We have a lot of Jewish people who attend our campuses and watch. Um, twice I've been told by some of our Jewish attenders, and this didn't offend me at all. They said, Andy, when you talk about Jesus, we just filter that out. You are a fantastic motivational speaker. And I say, I am so honored that you would come to our church or watch online and and get enough out of it and kind of filter out the Jesus. Now, I hope one day you consider Jesus, but hey, just keep listening and keep watching, okay? But most of us, most of us are Gentiles, okay? Now, you gotta gotta kind of get in this first century mindset. So you're a first century Gentile. You worship the gods, plural. You have an altar in your home to your ancestors. You have no love for the gods and the gods have no love for you. Nobody worshiped Jupiter and Zeus and Mars because they loved them. Nobody sang songs of love to the gods. The gods toyed with the people and the people tried to manipulate the gods. That was the pagan religion. I mean, you know, as Westerners, even if you're not a Christian, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. But in the first century, the Gentiles, they didn't know about the Ten Commandments. They never read an Old Testament. They had some Jewish friends and they were kind of strange and they knew there was a synagogue in town. But they had no comprehension of an Old Testament or what the Old Testament was about. And they didn't care. Christianity was introduced to us Gentiles. Christianity was introduced to us Gentiles as something brand new that God had done in the world. And not a single Gentile became a Christian because somebody showed him a book and said, here's what the Bible says. Nobody became a Christian because the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, because there was no New Testament. There was no Christian Bible. There was just the Old Testament that most Gentiles didn't take seriously because that was a Jewish book. But if you're telling me a guy rose from the dead And you're telling me that we could go to Jerusalem and you could introduce me to people who saw a living, you know, man who rose from the dead and he claims to be from God, then I want to know more about that. All us Gentiles had in the first century was the gospel and the eyewitness accounts of the eyewitnesses, the teaching of Jesus according to the eyewitnesses. That's all they had. That's why Paul, when he wrote his letter to the church in Corinth that we read last week, He said, hey, I want to remind you of what's most important. And he said, this is the gospel I preached to you. It's to a bunch of Gentiles, didn't have a Jewish background, didn't know anything about the Old Testament except what they'd heard from their friends who went to synagogue. And he said, here's the most important thing. He said, Christ died for your sin and was buried. That's how you know he died. He rose from the dead and he was seen. And that was the gospel. And that's all they had. But let's face it, that's not a lot to go on. So he got all these Gentiles going, oh my gosh, I don't have to be manipulated by the gods. And and then the people who share the gospel with the Gentiles said, and guess what? This one single God, this one single God has invited you, now this was new, has invited you to approach him as if he is your heavenly father. You're kidding, that's so intimate, it's so personal. So Gentiles began to flock to the gospel, not because they love the Old Testament, not because, you know, Genesis and original sin, they didn't know any about that, didn't care anything about that. They believed, they were convinced someone rose from the dead not too far from where they lived. But that's pretty much all they had to go on. It's like, all right, Jesus rose from the dead, I'm a Christian, now what? That's about all we got. You know, we'll be back later, okay? Because we're not, you know, so anyway, so here's what happened. Meanwhile, is this interesting? Okay, so meanwhile, 
back in Jerusalem, you've got these thinking Jewish leaders who have suddenly found Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh my gosh, there were hints of Jesus everywhere. How did we miss it? And they decide, they decide that they need to keep Christianity all hitched up to the Old Testament, not just historically, like, you know, God prepared the world for Jesus and then Jesus came from the Jewish nation and the Jewish nation was like a cocoon that birthed the savior of the world. Not just a historical connection, but a theological connection as well. It's like, Jesus was Jewish, the Jewish nation birthed the Messiah, the savior of the world. So all of these Gentiles that are now embracing the Jewish Messiah as their Messiah and their savior, well, it just makes sense. They need to all become Jewish to which all of us who are in the room and listening and watching who are Gentiles should all go, because that's a big deal. So, and this is when it really gets exciting. So in the document that is in the New Testament called Acts, A-C-T-S, now remember this, first these events happened, then they were written down, then they were included in the New Testament. So there's no Bible, there's no New Testament. About uh, 50 or so AD, about 50 AD, you know, about 20 so years after Jesus rose from the dead, there is the first church business meeting. And you can read about it in your New Testament in Acts chapter 15. It's called, essentially, oftentimes referred to as the first church council. I like to think of it as a church business meeting. Now, if you were raised in a Baptist church like I was, there was nothing as boring or as exciting as the church business meeting, okay? It was like, you know, five elderly ladies and the pastor reading something no one understood, or everybody showed up because the pastor had done something really bad and everybody wanted to hear about it, okay? So you either had a full house or, you know, eight or nine people, you know, and then there was like the church business meeting where we're gonna vote on the carpet, you know, and all Auburn fans were saying, we want orange carpet and all the bulldogs, you know, so you had, those were exciting church business meetings too. And by the way, that might be, church business meetings might be a good reason to abandon Christianity now that I think about it. But, okay, forget I said that. So anyway, so in Acts chapter 15, it's amazing. We have a record of the first church business meeting. And the question is, do we have to become Jewish to be Jesus followers? Our future, your future hung in the balance of what they decided in this meeting. So I'm gonna read you just a piece of this story and this sets us up as we launch into the end commandment. So this is found in Acts chapter 15. I'll just read this to you. Certain people came down from Judea. Now Jerusalem's up on a hill, Judea is raised up. So whenever you left Jerusalem or Judea, you always went down regardless if you were going north or south. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, about 300 miles away, so about two weeks travel. So this isn't like a day trip. Two weeks they had to walk. They went from Judea to Antioch because there was a bunch of Gentile believers there, and they were teaching the believers, the Gentile believers, us. Here's what they were teaching them. Ready? Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There should be like a murmur or a groan or something. It's like, what? I mean... Because this is what they're going to decide on in the Jerusalem council. They're going to decide if every man who becomes a Christian has to have a surgery. Can you imagine what this would have done to a Billy Graham crusade? (laughs) Or imagine those of you with teenagers, you know, it's that last night at camp, you know, and you're at home and your son's, you know, and he calls up and says, mom, dad, let's go great. You know, and during worship tonight, I became a Christian. They want to know about our health care provider, okay? It's like, 
I mean, this would so complicate our experience as Christians, right? But they were saying, hey, look, we found Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is Jewish. We've birthed the world's Messiah. Just makes sense. This isn't just historical extension. This is theological extension. So all the Jesus followers have to become Jewish, to which we're like, oh, you know, pray hard. Okay, he, he continues. This brought Paul and Barnabas, who'd been out sharing the gospel with Gentiles all over the place, but Paul hasn't written a bunch of letters yet. This is before all that. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with him. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other folks, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles. Okay, you got Andrew's there, and Matthew's there, and John's there, and Peter's there. Okay, these are the guys, you know, they're in Jerusalem, to meet with the apostles and elders about this question. And the question is, do we have to become Jewish in order to become Jesus followers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported. So they gave a report of everything that um, God had done through them. So Paul gets there and says, hey, you're not gonna believe this. You know, I was in Corinth and I was in, over in the in the province of Galatia and you know I've been traveling around and I go I go and preach the gospel and Gentiles are giving up their pagan gods and their pagan idol worship and they're embracing Jesus as savior and all these Jewish people in Jerusalem at this council are like man that that's that's fantastic and then now now okay look up here one second if you're not a Christian I'm just telling you this is huge and if you gave it up this is huge ready then some of the believers, Christians, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, pause. In the meeting of these leaders of the church in the first century, there were Pharisees who had become believers. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, you know, the Pharisees are like the Klingons. They're like the perennial bad guys. They're like the enemies of Jesus. Every time Jesus shows up, there's Pharisees. It's bad news. They hate Jesus. They were behind having Jesus crucified. They, have put, they put away some of their theological peculiarities in order to meet with the Sanhedrin and the teachers of the law to gang up on Jesus. They are why Jesus lost favor with the people. In the book of Acts, Pharisees show up as leaders in the church. How in the heck did that happen? Was it because of what Jesus taught? Was it because of the miracles? No. Was it because he was crucified? No. There is only one explanation as to why Pharisees joined the church. It's because he rose from the dead. And get this. They show up with their hat in their hands, sobbing to the leaders of the church going, I, we are so ashamed of ourselves. We crucified the son of man. We've come to apologize. And do you know what the first century believers did to those guys? They welcomed them. My goodness. They welcomed the very ones who are responsible for crucifying Jesus. So at this meeting, you have Pharisees because they saw and believed the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Okay, gotta keep going. So the Pharisees stood up and they said, but now these Pharisees are all about the law. Okay, okay we're, we love Jesus. Yes, we do love Jesus. How about you? But, okay, the law. So the Pharisees stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So that's the point of this meeting. The apostles, so the apostles and the elders met to consider the question after much discussion. Here he is, Peter got up and addressed them. Now in the church, in the first century, in the early days of the church, that there were two main guys. There was Peter and one more guy we'll get to in just a second. 
Peter, okay, it's Peter who denied Jesus, but Peter's the guy. This is why those of you who are Roman Catholic, you know, you're all about Peter. I mean, Peter emerged almost day one, almost day one as the leader of the church and thus the Pope. And so all that important church tradition that is so important. So here's Peter, he's like the guy. So Peter stands up and he speaks and he says, brothers, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. Because Peter, five chapters earlier, had actually, he, you know, God told him, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. I want you to go spend some time with Gentiles. And Peter's like, I'm not going. You get somebody else because they have cooties, Gentile cooties. And Jesus, God said, no, you go down there and share the gospel with Gentiles. And, and I want you to eat with them. And I'm not going to eat with them. I'm telling you to eat with them. So Peter's like, okay, guys, I know this is sensitive. But you know that I actually participated in sharing the gospel with Gentiles. That they might believe just as we have. Now then, why do you, now he's kind of shaking his, you know, kind of getting in the face of the Pharisees and the, the Christians there that think that all of us need to become Jewish before we can be Jesus followers. He says, now then, why do you try to test God? Now, for the Pharisees in the group, that was like a whoo. It's in other words, he's saying, look, you've already been on the wrong side of God once. Do you really want to be on the wrong side of God again? Why do you want to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's going, look, look, Jewish friends, you were raised with this. You were raised kosher. You were raised thinking this way. You were raised reading the Torah. You were raised memorizing this. How is this going to sit when we send a letter down to Antioch saying, hey, all you 35-year-old guys and 40-year-old guys and 25-year-old women and 45-year-old women, you got to clean out your house. You got to memorize 600 laws. I mean, really? And besides that, he says to his Jewish friends, how has this been working out for you? Have you enjoyed the temple system? Have you enjoyed the sacrificial system? Has you enjoyed all the burden, the yoke of the law? I mean, it's hard for us. Do we really want to place that on the necks and the backs of all these new believers in Jesus? Neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear it. No, he says. No, this is Peter. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus, not the law. We believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And then he sits down, and it's quiet. Isn't this awesome? And then, it's my favorite part, James, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up to speak. See, Peter and James, they're like the guys. Peter, because Peter's Peter, and James, because, okay, so you all went to high school together, you and Jesus. What was that like? Okay, anyway, so, so James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James, you need to know this, and I told you this last week, James doesn't show up in the story of Jesus. James and his mom and all the bros and sisters, you know, they're, they're, they kind of think Jesus is a little bit off, a little bit crazy, but James is like the Pharisees. James shows up later. Why? <laughs> Because when you stand behind your mama and watch your brother die on a cross and then you meet him a few days later, it's like you believe, you just believe, whatever, I believe, that was James. So now James is at this meeting. He's a believer, he's a follower of his brother. And then James stands up and says something that to me is so profound. If this is your first time to worship with us or be at one of our churches, you need to know this. This verse that I'm about to show you, what James says, hangs in my office, I see it every single day. This is the most, this is the most uh, focusing and determinative and you know, vision cast verse in the whole New Testament for me and our churches because this is what I want our churches to be about more than anything else. This is, this is the thing and this is what James says. This is why some of you like to come to church here and like to watch even though you don't like me and you don't like church. It's why some of you don't believe yet but you keep coming anyway. 
And you say, well, I wouldn't go except my kids drag me, but you're kind of starting to like it, you know? A little unsweetened iced tea. You know, you're sort of acquiring a taste for it. <laughs> or beer. Anyway, so this is... See, I'm drawing you in. It's like, hey, you say beer in church. See, okay. I have an agenda, okay? Now, okay, here we go. Ready? James stands up and he says this. It is my judgment. In other words, I'm making the decision. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's what we're trying to do as a church right there. Sometimes people say, oh, you make it too easy. I'm going, yeah, we're trying to make it as easy as possible. Yes, don't apologize for that. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. He's saying, look, if somebody has taken their eyes off the pagan world or the no God world and they're beginning to focus on the one true living God, let's fan that flame. Let's not do anything to make it unnecessarily difficult for those who are turning to God. And then he says this, instead, in other words, instead of saying, hey, you Christians down in Antioch, here's 600 laws to memorize and learn, clean out your house. In fact, some of you are just gonna have to bulldoze your house. It's so contaminated, got so many Gentile cooties. He's saying, look, instead, instead of that, we should, we, instead, we should write them and tell them, and them is us, okay? This is so important. If you are a Gentile Christian, this was the first letter ever written to you. I'm about to read it to you. This letter was written to you. This letter was written to me. As we waited in Antioch to find out, oh my gosh, do I have to become full-fledged Jewish before I can be a Jesus follower? This is the letter, and this, and this is the letter that's so important, and this is gonna mess with some of you, okay? This is the letter that explains how you as a Gentile Christian are to view the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. James is about to tell you how you should view the first five books of the Bible. Here he goes. Greetings. See, you thought we'd made that up. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us, from Jerusalem, without our authorization and disturbed you. In other words, you were beginning to follow Jesus and then some people came from Jerusalem with all these new rules, okay? Troubling you, or troubling your minds by what they said. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Now, this is just, this is mind-boggling, okay? This whole conversation was, do we give them 600-plus laws? I mean, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? In fact, most of you think you should keep the Ten Commandments. Most of you couldn't name two. Any survey, do you believe the Ten Commandments? Yep, name them. Ah, some about adultery and lying. Yeah, okay, close. Okay, so anyway, so now get, it, get this. The Gentiles, they don't know 10 commandments. They don't know 10 anything. They don't know who Adam and Eve is. And so now he's about to tell, give them the requirements. So the, all these requirements, 10 commandments plus 500 some other commandments, of all those commandments, now James in this letter is about to tell us which ones we're responsible for. Are you ready for this? This is unbelievable. Here they are. You are to abstain from food sacrificed by, to idols. Okay, put a check by that one. From blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, we learn in this same text, you can read it for yourself, that the only reason he mentioned these dietary laws is because in all of these cities, the synagogues, you know, people knew Jewish people, and he knew that many Jews were turning to Jesus and Gentiles, and he knew that Jews and Gentiles would not mix if Gentiles were not sensitive to the Jewish people's dietary laws. It's such a big deal. He says that later on. So essentially, he's saying, I want you to be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters, and I don't want you to sleep with their wives, and don't let them sleep with your wives. 
And you know what else is on the list? Here's the rest of the letter. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We didn't even get close to 10. That's kind of like one commandment. It's like, wait, 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 wait. We went from 600 to 10 to, hey, don't offend your Jewish brothers and sisters with what you eat and don't sleep with their wives and wives don't sleep with their husbands and that's it? Yeah, that's it. The whole Old Testament just like that? Yeah, you don't need the Old Testament. You don't need to do all that stuff. Okay, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It tells us about Jesus. You may enjoy the stories, you know, flannel graph. You know, it's all exciting. But th that is not your approach to God because you have been saved by grace. So the men were sent off. Okay, the men were sent off and they went down to Antioch. You know, two weeks later they get there where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter and the people read it. You know, the guys, you know, the guys are waiting for this letter. Like, just pray for the, let's pray for the Jerusalem council. Could we, you know, it's like, please don't come down here and tell me that I have to become Jewish in order to, you know. He said, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Whoo. <laughs> telling you, Gentiles, we were at stake. Now, let me tell you how, what a big deal this is historically, okay? Then I'm gonna wrap this up. The Jesus movement, the Jesus movement came that close to stalling out because if the Jerusalem council had decided, yep, just like the Old Testament birthed Jesus and the Old Testament and the Jewish law, in order to be a Christian, you've got to become Jewish. If they had decided that all of us have to be Jewish, then Christianity would have died in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire because in 70 AD, ancient Judaism ceased to exist and Christianity would have ceased to exist with it. This was a big deal. But in that council, our faith was unhitched from ancient Judaism. But that left a gap. That was not much to go on. So basically, all they said was, you'll do well not to offend your Jewish neighbors with your diet, and you would do well to avoid sexual immorality. Okay, this is gonna be hard for the preacher. See, because they gotta show up every Sunday and preach on something. So one week they preach on diet, the next week they preach on sex. The next week they preach on diet, the next week they preach on sex. Actually, that would be good, wouldn't it? Because for most of you, those are your two problems. You know, how do they know, right? I just thought of that. So anyway, trying to think if that's really true. By the look on most of your face, that's pretty much it. Diet, sex, okay, short series. So. Wrapping up, all right, ready? So that's all they got. Paul hadn't started writing letters yet. There is no New Testament. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not written yet. Maybe parts are being written, we don't know. They don't show up till later. So now this is where we are. This is why we're gonna do the end commandments. So now you got us Gentile Christians with no Bible, no Old Testament other than, hey, it's fascinating, but you don't have to do any of that. And we've got the apostles' teachings and that's it. Basically, if we can just kind of go back in time and pretend, because this is where we're going for the next few weeks. They had, we had the gospel and we had Jesus' commands. Not Paul's, not Peter's, not James, all that was later. All we got is the gospel and Jesus' commands and Jesus' commands are really unrealistic commands. 
I mean, there's the love one another thing. And in the brand new series, we just talked about that and talked about that love one another, love one another. And that determines our horizontal relationships. We talked about that. But Jesus issued some other commands. He, he, he issued some, uh, some commands that required extraordinary, extraordinary trust in God as heavenly father. They were so big, and this is all the first century church had to go on, really, for a bunch of years. All they had was the gospel, Jesus died for sin, rose from the dead, and Jesus' commands. And Jesus' commands were so unrealistic, they didn't even make sense till after the resurrection. For example, we're going to talk about five, but I'll give you a little heads up on three. Here's one. Here's a good command. Fear not. Do what? Yeah, just don't be afraid. Come back next week. It's like... Wait, can you even do that? Jesus says, yes, just stop being afraid. How about this one? Doubt not. Do what? Yeah, quit doubting. But I can't help with that. Okay, stop, stop doubting. Okay, who can do this? What about thou shalt not lie? Okay, I like that, but no doubt. How about this one? Worry not. Just stop worrying. These are what Jesus would say. And so his followers before the resurrection were like, okay, okay, you're Jesus and all, but we can't just not fear and we can't just not doubt and we cannot just not worry to which I think Jesus thought, you just wait. Because when you see your resurrected Savior, what will you have to be afraid of? Oh, yeah. <laughs> think about that. Hey, when you see your resurrected Savior, when will you doubt? Oh, yeah. Hey, when you see someone crucified and you see them after they've risen from the dead, now, what, you're, what are you worried about? Oh, yeah, and my friends, listen. Okay, listen. <coughs> that is what fueled the first century church. They were fearless. They did not doubt. They did not worry. They laid down their lives. And it's historically a mystery. But theologically, there's no mystery at all. Because when you are convinced your Savior rose from the dead, everything changes. So we're going to talk about what we're calling Jesus in commandments. Being fearless. Dealing with doubt. Dealing with worry. And two more I'm not going to tell you because they're going to come as a surprise. When combined with his command to love one another, my friends, it changed the world. So for the next few weeks, I want us to kind of retreat back in time and put Paul out of the picture and some of the stuff we've been taught out of the picture, put the Old Testament out of the picture and just pretend for a few weeks, we're like, all we know is Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And now what did Jesus say? You know, God, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. What did Jesus say? And we're gonna start next week with fear and talk about, is it even, is it even rational for there to be a command, fear not? We're gonna discover that there is. So don't, miss next week. This is what fueled the church. And this will always be the fuel of the church because we have been invited just as Jesus invited his original followers to embrace what we're going to call the end commandments. If you want to keep up online, if you fell asleep during the meeting, message came up, came awake afterwards. If you go to endcommandments.org, we're going to have PDFs. You can download these, talk about it with your small group, tell a friend to catch up so they can join you next week. But do not miss next week and don't miss this series as we discover why no one should ever, ever, ever abandon the faith. And for those of you who are considering it, why you should embrace it and embrace it quickly because Jesus died on the cross for your sin 
and rose from the dead and was seen. Let me pray for you and we'll go. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for preserving these records for us. Thank you for the men and women who gave away their lives so that we could have them. Thank you for the fearlessness of the early church, the doubtlessness of the early church, the fact that somehow they overcame worry when they had so much to worry about. I pray that we would catch that, that you would give us a dose of that, that you would open our eyes to see in a way we've never seen before, and that we would live boldly, lovingly, and that as those first century Christians embraced their enemies, that we would learn to embrace ours as well. So guide us as we go and give us wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard. In Jesus' name.